Hi everyone, my name is Mom Surratt and I serve as the Associate Director of Campus Activities and Events at Clemson University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. Today we'll be reflecting on the Leadership Identity Development Model and, and, state current, uh, and the current state of research and practice. My guests today are Erica Cohen-Durr and Melissa Rocco. Erica serves as, the, as an Associate Dean of Student Affairs at Georgetown University. She oversees a variety of student engagement units, including student organizations, leadership programs, new student orientation, campus recreation, student centers, and event management. Erica is also a doctoral student in the Liberal Studies Program at Georgetown. Her research interests and focus on identity development in general and student leadership development in particular. Before landing on her career in student affairs, she enjoyed work in both banking and nonprofit management. She holds a BS in anthropology from the College of William and Mary and a master's in education and counseling and personnel services from the University of Maryland. Melissa currently serves as a postdoctoral fellow for the Center for uh, Diversity and Inclusion in Higher Education and lecturer for the Higher Education Student Affairs and International Education Policy Program at the University of Maryland. Through her research, teaching, and practice, Melissa seeks to challenge dominant narratives of leadership and the college experience by exploring the intersections of student identity development and leadership understanding. Her student affairs background includes roles in, in co-curricular leadership programs, student activities, and fraternity and sorority life. She holds a BS in business administration and an MA in higher education and student affairs, both from The Ohio State University, and a PhD in higher education, student affairs, and international education policy from the University of Maryland. Welcome, Melissa and Erica. Thank you. Yeah, well, I am uh, uh, on this uh, hot day in South Carolina. I'm already, uh, I'm already exhausted from reading about uh, both of your respective portfolios. So uh, <laughs> let's, let's get started uh, and, and get to know you all a little bit. So um, Erica, let's, uh, let's start with you. Can you tell us about your brush with culinary royalty? Yeah, thanks, Miles. Uh, so my first introduction to the working world was as a cashier at a family-owned pharmacy in my hometown, which was Arlington, Massachusetts, when I was growing up. And one day when I was working at the register, I heard this very familiar, resonant, lyrical voice. And it turns out it was Julia Child, who famously lived in the next town over, which is Cambridge, Massachusetts. And so I, w I got to wait on Julia Child and check her out um, as she was purchasing her her items, and I'll never forget that she wrote a check to pay for these items, and I was totally starstruck. Wow. Did you, uh, did you uh, ask to look at her ID when she wrote the check? <laughs> I think I was a little dumbstruck and uh, probably <laughs> forgot my, um, my check verification procedures in that moment. Well, somebody at that grocery store is going to come with some questions for you now. Um, I, uh, yeah, Julie Tell, all-time distinctive voice, I would say, like really, really up there. Yeah, and she really just, you, you knew when you heard it that was somebody that you were familiar with. Yeah, okay. All right, Melissa, uh, to stay in, uh, in the world of high cuisine, really, um, <laughs> what about strawberry-flavored Twizzlers makes them a superior candy in your opinion? Oh man! Um, so a few things. I guess I should I should start by saying that they yes they are my absolute favorite candy on the planet. Um, and I think most folks who know me well and including my students would say that that is the case. So here's my, here's the deal. I, they are my main my main thing is that they are always chewy. So I feel like other licorice gets dried out too quickly or is too tough to eat. 
I also happen to feel like they taste more like an actual fruit than other red licorice. And that's a, mm. that's a relative statement, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. still a lot of sugar. Um, mm-hmm. But honestly, the thing that makes them my most favorite is that um, they're useful as straws. So when we were growing up, my grandmother, well, we had, a, we had, had one grandmother who was the healthy grandma and would only ever let us eat, you know, like grapefruit without sugar on it. And then my um, other grandma, which was the treats grandma, she uh, would always have us, she would make root beer floats for us and would give us Twizzlers to use as straws for our root beer floats. So I have a special place in my heart. <laughs> Mm, yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, you know. I think uh, I think the taste more like fruit is a is a valid argument. Uh, Thank Erica, you. Any uh, any thoughts on uh, any thoughts on Twizzlers or uh, gummy fruits in general? Anything you'd like to share on that front? I mean, I am definitely a candy junkie, but my tastes tend a little more towards chocolate. Um, so I my palate probably isn't as refined as Melissa's when it comes to gummies, but. But there is this one type of gummy candy. They're made by Haribo. They're called Picabala. I find them utterly irresistible, and I could eat a whole bag in one sitting. Oh, wow. Picabella. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Like, what, what's, the, what's the deal? I know a lot of people have, like, their, their niche uh, Haribo uh, preference. One of my former coworkers was, like, nuts about the sour ones, and he, had, he was French, and he could only find them in France. So. Yeah. These are, um, they're like little soccer balls, and they come in a blue bag, and they're, they're gummy, but they're sort of wrapped in a, what maybe is like a fruit roll-up style gummy thing, so it's not as bouncy to bite on, um, mm. which is what I like about it. It sort of has a little more give. And you can't buy them in most grocery stores, but there's a German store in Falls Church, Virginia, which is where I go and stock up on them. Wow. Well, I feel like I need to do some Googling on that. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have a gummy party. Oh, yeah, seriously. I'm very interested in that. One uh, one summer I was uh, studying German at Middlebury uh, College's language immersion program, and so we had to sign a a pledge that we were only going to speak the language that we were studying all summer. And so we were like talking with one of our professors one time and they were like the most patient people in the world, like, you know, speaking this, like, you know, with all of us speaking this incredibly broken English. And one of our professors who was a real delight was teaching us about gummy bears because she had like brought gummy bears when you were sharing them. And I was really uh, pleased to learn that they're called gummy bearkin in German. So that was uh, was pretty, pretty easy to remember. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for uh, this week in the NASA and the NASA Candy Podcast. Next week, we will uh, we'll be back to discuss uh, to discuss chocolate. Okay. Um, all right. So, Erica, tell me this: Do you think the uh, your fine employers there at Georgetown should be concerned about you relocating to Arlington, Texas? Do you think that that's something that they should be worried about? <laughs> well, certainly not in the me- the immediate future, but I. I think that Arlington, Texas should probably be on my short list the next time I look to make a geographic move. Um, So I grew up and spent the first 18 years of my life in Arlington, Massachusetts. And now for the last 15 years, I've lived in Arlington, Virginia. And those happen to be uh, the the third and second largest Arlingtons in the country, respectively. And I did Google this just to be, you know, 
factually accurate in how I portray it. And Arlington, Texas is the largest Arlington in the country. And do you have any guess how many Arlingtons there are in the country? Different I'm going to say 30. That's, that is pretty good, 21. So 21 wow. different states have a town or a city or a municipality named Arlington. So I've hit the second and third largest, and maybe I need to hit the, third, the first largest. Well, that Googling that you did on the Arlington, that is the kind of insight that people come, uh, that people come to this podcast for. That is, <laughs> That's right. I do, I do appreciate you, you putting that work in. Uh, <laughs> I feel like you need to visit at least, at least a handful of them. Like even if obviously moving to 21 different Arlingtons is not going to happen, but you should visit. It should be like a bucket list thing. I think that's a great idea, Melissa. I think maybe that's going to be – I've got a little more free time on my hands now that uh, I'm finishing up my degree. So that's, that's, right. that's my next goal. Yep. That's Top of the idea. list. Yep. More time with family. Second, number one, go to more Arlington's. Um, the Arlington. See all the Arlington's. Well, Melissa, conveniently, we're all fired up for this next question then. And maybe we've already – I don't know. Maybe we've already stepped on your answer. If you could convince the folks listening to travel to one destination in the world, where would you choose? And maybe let's just say we're, we're just assuming that all of the Arlingtons are at the top of the list. So after, after we've all done that, where would, right. where would you go? Right. That's right. So number 22, basically. Is yeah. Going to be. <laughs> right. Um, got, so I was – Oh, this is tough because I'm not, I mean, I obviously have not been everywhere in the world. Um, and my travels have been mostly like kind of the Western world centric. So I will caveat with that and say that um, of the places I have been, though, oh, I, honestly, one of my most favorite was Stockholm, Sweden, um, for a couple of reasons. It's kind of like, it has a little bit of everything in the city. So the coolest thing about Stockholm is that it's an archipelago a large word, but that's, that's like the, if you remember from geography class, like the land map that has all kinds of different islands, like all in a series, and like, the, so the whole city and like the, I guess counties, if, they, if that's what they call them, kind of span multiple little islands, and there's like water taxis that go between the different islands, and all, there's all kinds of really cool little villages and um, like parks, local parks and things, you know, in all these different parts of the city that you get to via water taxi. So if you go at a time of the year where it's not freezing, um, it's just, it's one of the most like relaxing, lovely things ever to get to kind of take the water taxi between parts of the city, which is really cool. Um, and then there's like a part of the city that's a little bit like like a Brooklyn, New York, right? So up and coming, lots of cool like shops and restaurants, and that's kind of where like all the you know the young cool people are living. And then there's the the historic part, Gamlestan, which um, is all like the cobblestone streets and the museum about the Nobel Prize winners and things like that. Um, and then the rest of it, then there's a whole island in the archipelago that's um, called Jur Garden, which is basically like all of the, the gardens and beautiful like museum lawns and, and art, you know, kinds of really cool architecture and homes. And um, I don't know, like I just think there's a little bit of everything there. And, you know, plus, uh, you know, that whole part of the world is supposedly some of the, you know, some of the happiest people on the planet. So how could you say no? <laughs> mm. Did you know that they're experimenting with uh, getting rid of cash in Stockholm? Oh, I didn't know that, but I'm not surprised at all. 
Yeah, yeah, they think they can't do it. The, they want to do it in the whole country, but there there are concerns about like the elderly population, Sweden, Sweden being comfortable with that. But sure. they're like doing a pilot for like two years in Stockholm, I think. Um, so they uh, sort of they're like trying to be cashless in the whole city within the next like three or four years. Pretty yeah, that's yeah, that's not surprising. There's some cool stuff there. Hmm. Okay, sounds like uh, an amazing Eric, place. Yeah, yeah none of that sounded bad. <laughs> no, it's not. It's really not. It's really. I just would go. Obviously, I would go in the summer. <laughs> it gets pretty cold and pretty dark later on in other parts of the other parts of the year. So. Yeah, a dark frozen water taxi does sound less appealing. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. All right, Erica. We ask this question uh, in every podcast. Um, so, what is the best book about leadership? Oh. This is such a tough one, Miles. Um, and, you know, with the obvious caveat that there is, there's no best, right? There's no one. Um, and sure. I, I have a couple thoughts on this, and I'll um, suggest a couple, with the caveat that I'm, I'm deliberately not naming the books that I used for my doctoral research, um, mostly because, you know, they're, they're all wonderful and they all really provided – uh, good foundations and good insights. So I'll just kind of go a different direction with this one. Um, there's a book called Smart Choices, A Practical Guide to Making Better Life Decisions. And um, a friend and colleague, Heather McGinnis, who works at University of Delaware, turned me on to this book um, as a way of kind of talking through and doing leadership development work with students around decision making. And I think, you know, practicing leadership means making a lot of decisions and how you think about them and you know, the role that emotions play or sort of cognitive analysis plays. So I rec definitely recommend Smart Choices. Um, John Hammond, Ralph Keeney, and Howard Rafa are the authors on that one. And um, I also think it's important to look for, you know, leadership lessons in all kinds of books. And I, I enjoy biographies and memoirs and autobiographies. And I'll tell you that Shonda Rhimes' Year of Yes, I think, is a really outstanding book in terms of leadership lessons and reflections and, you know, how she thought about her life and her career and balance and purpose. And um, I just found a lot of inspiration from that book. Okay. Awesome. Um, all right, Melissa, our uh, final question in this section. I know that you've lived in a small apartment for a long time. So <laughs> yeah. what is your best space-saving tip? <laughs> off the top of my head is to stop going to Target. Um, <laughs> I feel like shop less. All right, shop less. Um, but for real. So I, you know, I live in the in the heart of of Washington D.C. and it's a largely pedestrian city. And so um, my partner and I gave up our cars a long time ago. And I'm telling you right now, it is amazing how much less stuff we have because we can't just like get in the car and go to Target or go to Walmart or go to, go to some large box store, right? Um, so I, that would be my first tip is just to think about, like, what you're, what you're purchasing and, and what is prompting you to purchase those things. Um, but maybe on a more, uh, maybe on a, a more practical level um, is, is more so don't keep things that you don't need. So, you know, trying to – save space in a small apartment. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of creative ways to, uh, let, that people come up with for storage and stuff like that. But honestly, the best 
like I tried to shove a lot of things into a lot of small spaces for a good portion of my adult life. And it, when it comes down to it, the better option is just to really do an assessment of what you've got and what you need and then, you know, be giving things to charity or selling them or, you know, whatever it is that you need to do to kind of get rid of them. Um, it's just been, living in a small space has been a really good lesson in what is necessary versus what is just kind of desired or frivolous. So it's been a cool experience. All right. That's awesome. Um, all righty. So um, let's see. We're going to go ahead and open up the uh, gripes tab now. So Melissa, we're gonna, I'm going to go right back to you. Tell me about uh, something arbitrary in your life that really uh, that really drives you nuts. <laughs> um, so we'll go. We'll continue with this, uh, this pattern of stuff about Washington. Funny things about Washington D.C. and living um, without a car is just the use of public transportation. And one of the things that definitely drives me up a wall, and I, I think uh, you know uh, you both have also been in Washington D.C. or lived here in the past, and so. Um, one of the things that really drives me nuts is this thing called escalating. So <laughs> when you are on, um, so on the metro system, when you're on the escalators that you know go down into the the tunnel, into the sorry, into the metro stops, um, or up, you know, take you up to the street level. Um, there's kind of this unspoken rule in DC that you stand. If you're going to stand on the escalator, you're going to stand on the right side. And if you're going to walk on the escalator, you're going to walk on the left, right? So similar to patterns like in, in driving a car, that if you're, going to, if you're just going the, the normal speed limit and along with the pattern of traffic, you drive on the right. And if you're going to pass, you go on the left and you pass you know, at, at your whatever speed. Um, so we do that as pedestrian commuters in DC, especially on these escalators and, and during really crowded times on the metro, like maintaining that pattern is important because otherwise people are missing trains all the time and there are lines backed up along the sidewalk and into the streets and into the tunnels. So um, when there is someone standing on the left-hand side of the escalator, you're like keeping people from getting where they need to go. And the, the folks in D.C. will let you know that. So <laughs> tourists beware of escalating. <laughs> Yeah, it's like uh, it's like a thing that shows that DC is like this weird intersection between uh, between the South and the North. Because sometimes sometimes people you'll get like, excuse me, excuse me, like very direct. Like people are basically yep. telling you to move. And then other times you'll just get people who are kind of like like me when I lived there, being a Southerner, I would just kind of be like, just kind of sighing, like, oh, gosh, go move with your Washington, right. D.C. print, sweatshirt, like hoodie sweatshirt, and keep moving. This is terrible. Right, so, right. Yeah. I've seen people get run over at times, which is so awful. But, I mean, you think about it, like, you know, people aren't just walking into the metro station all the time because they're, like, leisurely taking the metro, like, People got places to go, and if you if that's your primary mode of transportation, like you know, you got to move it. <laughs> so. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <sighs> All right, Erica. How about you? What is uh, what is the uh, the gripe you would like to share with the world today? Oh, such an opportunity. Um, I think my gripe <laughs> <Such> an and <laughs> it probably contributes to the phenomena of escalating. Um, <laughs> I love that term, by the way. That is awesome. Um, 
would be, you know, it sounds so like, I feel like this is probably a sort of straightforward one for this day and age, but I think the uh, distraction that comes from everybody always looking at their phones is mm-hmm. just a problem. And, and, you know, it bothers me on a efficiency level, like when you are trying to walk or get through a crowded group and there are people on their phones and not paying attention to what's happening around them. Um, and also I think just symbolically what it means for how we pay attention to others in our lives. And so I'm really trying to not look at, not try and be on my phone and do, you know, community or be in relationship with people. I want to just put the phone down and I really want others to put the phone down when they're talking to me too. So mm-hmm. down with distraction. Yeah. Down with distraction. Buy multitasking. Get out of here. Let's just focus. <laughs> just focus on conversation. All right. Um, okay. Well, now that we've uh, now that we've shared our gripes with the world, let's uh, maybe you know gripes with the world. We had a, a brief NASA candy podcast, and now maybe we'll talk about the the leadership identity development model. So, Erica, that's what we're here to discuss. Um, just for everyone's uh, just for everyone's prep, uh, the leadership identity development model is many times referred to as the LID model. We will probably consciously or subconsciously refer to it as that uh, going forward. So can you start by giving everyone just a quick primer, just get us all sort of on the same page uh, related to uh, what, you know, what comprises the general principles of the leadership identity development model? Sure. Um, and I appreciate the kind of naming out of the acronym, right? Acronyms are so easy. But the, the leadership identity development model or LID model in theory were developed in the first half of the 2000s by a research team comprised of Susan Comavez, Susan Longerbeam, Felicia Manella, Julie Owen, and Laura Osteen. Many of them have contributed to this podcast. They're really foundational thinkers, scholars, practitioners in the field. And the theory in the model sought to answer the question of how students develop a sense of themselves as leaders or as those practicing leadership. And specifically, they were talking about relational leadership, right, or that which is inclusive, ethical, empowering, purposeful, and process-oriented, and sort of building on the work that Susan Comavez and Tim McMahon and Nance Lucas had done. Um, And the research team used a grounded theory methodology, so they did interviews with students over a period of time to develop the theory, and they conceived of their findings as a stage-based model with six stages and five principal categories. Uh, The categories that support the process of leadership identity development were, um, first was broadening view of leadership, uh, developing a sense of self, group influences, and then developmental influences, so maybe adults or advisors. And then um, the fifth category was changing view of self in relation to others. And each of the stages, the six stages, reflected growing awareness and depth of understanding and practice with regard to leadership. So the stages were conceived of as first awareness and then exploration and engagement. Uh, Those are the first two. Then stage three is conceived of as leader identified, so kind of identifying who the leaders are, what roles they occupy. And then stage four is conceived of as, as leadership differentiated or how is leadership different from leader. Stage five is thought of as generativity, and then stage six is integration and synthesis. And a critical aspect of the model is the transition that happens between stage three and stage four, in which students go through this shift in their thinking uh, 
from a person-centered construction focused on the individual person as leader to a process-centered construction focused on relationship and exchange. So this description doesn't fully capture the richness and complexity of the model and all the kind of nuances and important ways in which transitions occur. Um, so, you know, there's lots we can talk about. Um, this research team published a couple of central articles on the overview of the theory and the model in like 2005, 2006, and then later they published a third article that reflects on, reflected on the challenges and the opportunities in implementing the model programmatically through curricula and in other ways that directly involve students. So that's kind of a summary, and I'm sure Melissa will have um, other things to add. Yeah, yeah. So, so on that front, Melissa, so Erica provided a, a great baseline here for like, can you tell us about current applications? Sure. And Erica, that's like the most succinct description of lit I've ever heard. I like, I'm applauding you over here on the other side of the phone. <laughs> uh, that was awesome. Um, no, I, you know, when we think about applications of the LID model, the first thing that comes to mind for me is um, kind of the zoom in on that, that key transition that Erica talked about. And so um, what the original research team noted is that there's this ripe opportunity, particularly in the college environment, for us to help students understand leadership beyond notions of position um, or beyond that duality of if I'm the leader, then you, have, then you are a follower. Um, and there's no kind of in-between. And so what we find, at least in most kind of practical applications of LID, is that um, you know, practitioners are using the, that idea of that key transition as kind of the framework or motivation for what they put into their leadership program. So when you think about um, you know, commonly used leadership models like the social change model or the relational leadership model or any, even some of the older, you know, theories of leadership around situational leadership and things like that, um, it really kind of points at that key transition opportunity that we have this, because of the kind of other developmental things that college, traditional age college students are going through when they're with us on campus, you know, trying to move from this idea of me, 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 um, to understanding kind of their place in the world along with other people in more collaborative ways, then those common kind of leadership frameworks and models match up pretty well, um, which, is, which is partly why, you know, we see people using them um, with college student leadership programs. Um, the other thing that I would add to that is that I think the research itself, the model itself has been applied a couple of times in some um, additional research projects, um, some of which have been published and many of which have not been. Um, but the main focus of kind of applications of LID in the research have been to um, different identity groups and other student populations. So for example, um, there's some research on LGBTQ students and their movement through the LID model, um, on Latinx students and kind of their movement through the model. And, and what we find is that the model, for the most part, largely holds up kind of in its spirit and sequence, but that what we find is that there's some variance in the experiences that serve as catalysts for students to move through the model. Um, so it kind of showcases um, just some of the more specific examples of learning, you know, learning experiences or programs or personal life experiences that various student populations may have that contribute to the way that um, a student might move through the LID model, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. So the nuance is more there. Um, does 
but that's really what we're, when we see applications of the research, those, it's kind of in, right now, most of what we've seen is into those specific identity groups or populations. Yeah, yeah. So Eric, kind of to follow up on that, you know, we're almost 20 years out from when the original research for, for LUD was conducted. And so I guess I wonder, you know, uh, we're here to talk about updates or to talk about where LUD is now. How do you think, how do you think context, context has changed the application of the leadership identity development model? Yeah, um, I think context continues to be really important in considering how to apply LID and where its utility lies and, and how to kind of make sense of these processes for students and, and student experiences kind of overall. Um, and Melissa referred to, you know, many of the ways that folks have studied this and what they've, angles that they've taken to look at. So I think um, there was one study looking at LID within the context of how Latina, Latinx women develop as their leadership identity in a Hispanic serving institution. And so thinking about when student um, identities are reflected in the institution or maybe when they're not, right? How, what is it like for students, students of color maybe at a predominantly white institution? Uh, the research that I was doing recently looked at traditionally aged students, right? And how is the context of being a traditionally aged student in a high achievement environment, what does that interplay look like when it comes to how students conceptualize leadership, how they see themselves in that context. Um, certainly student experiences, the roles that they have, the ways, you know, the constructing LID as a way to understand specific student experiences like the research that was done into students holding roles in identity-based organizations and how their pathway of developing a leadership identity is it, how much is it related to the organization that they're part of? How much is it um, collected, collectively related to the, the institutional environment or to the, the common experience that they have with other student leaders? Um, and I think, you know, all of this gives us a chance to reflect on the influences that are guiding students in their development of themselves as leaders and just as as humans, um, and what the, you know, how that interplay between context and environment and student um, takes place. And, you know, another way that you might think about this is in terms of students who have the opportunity to do curricular leadership programs versus those who are really developing and reflecting on leadership in co-curricular spaces. So context, I think, continues to be really, really important to how LID is conceived and, uh, and used as a tool. Yeah, yeah, and thinking through kind of uh, the use uh, of LID, um, Melissa, can you, can you walk us through uh, LID as a developmental model? Yeah, totally, and honestly, I think the first, the first key point, I think, is just in what you said, is, is for us to make sure that we're thinking about LID as a developmental model rather than as a leadership model. So one of the things that um, one of our, our, the original researchers on the LID team, Julie Owen, talks about is um, how folks sometimes will confuse LID to be, you know, the same type of framework as like a, a theory of leadership, and it's not. Really what it does is it puts a leadership lens over some of those really common student development theories that we talk about, you know, in higher ed student affairs prep programs. So, you know, when you think about, you know, 
dualism versus relativism and how that shows up in someone's conception of leadership of either leader follower, you know, being dualistic, or, you know, their, this idea of leadership as a process that's shared between people um, and that who is the leader, you know, depends on context and situations a bit more relative, right? Um, and so really we can make a lot of connections between some of those human development frameworks and the LID model. And so I think that's, that's the big thing to remember, you know, if you're wanting to use LID, you know, kind of in your work, whether that's through co-curricular programs or in a curricular context, um, is just to remember that really it's supposed to help us understand the way in which college students, or anyone really, to help us understand the way in which people understand leadership and why they might understand it the way that they do. It's not necessarily giving us a definition of leadership or a type of leadership to, to you know, ascribe, subscribe to, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I wonder, Erica, as a part of your doctoral work, I know you've been conducting really fascinating research at Georgetown on the impact of achievement of an achievement-oriented environment on notions of interdependence, which is a really interesting question. And so how do you think, you know, from a developmental standpoint, but just from, you know, just sort of summarizing key takeaways, you know, what have you seen in that research and how do you think that impacts, uh, impacts thinking on LID? Yeah, and I think this connects um, definitely to what Melissa was just talking about in terms of the, the use of LID as a developmental model and, and conceiving of that. So I was interested in thinking about students' perception of themselves in relation to others and how their sense of themselves as leaders might be informed or um, conceived of in terms of how they thought of others as practicing leadership or being leaders or occupying roles. And uh, the, the original, original LID model in this category in stage three, so stage three, changing view of self with others, conceives of two pathways, both either dependent or independent, as helping structure students' thinking of themselves as leaders. So they might think of themselves as in an independent pathway as being like, I'm the leader, I'm giving some direction, others might be dependent on me, I am independent. And or they conceive of themselves perhaps in roles that are follower roles where they are, look, they are dependent on the leader to give them some direction or to authorize them or um, you know, otherwise kind of give them a sense of agency for practicing leadership. And that in the transition between stage three and stage four, students move through one of those pathways and then uh, become more interdependent in a process conceived notion of leadership, right? So, and I thought that that was an interesting construction and probably a strong foundation, and certainly it connects us to student development theory. It's very grounded in Chickering language, right, Chickering and Riser. Um, but it also to me seemed to, that there was a little more nuance or maybe a little more um, variation in those particular constructions of pathways. And so I looked at, um, it, based on the, the data that I collected, which was qualitative data collected through interviews with students, um, in this achievement-oriented environment where students are, um, you know, had, had been through highly selective processes in admissions and in, uh, you know, had, had really had to promote themselves as leaders 
and high achievers to gain access to this community, um, that I saw some of that reflected in their sense of self in relation to others in stage three. And that, and that showed up to me in categories in terms of how they perceived themselves and how they thought they were perceived by others, um, also how they mattered to others or how they felt matter, that, that they mattered in community. Um, I heard students talk about social capital and how they practice leadership with regard for social capital and uh, sort of the value that they gained from some of their affiliations or the values that they contributed to some of those organizations. And I also thought, um, or I heard students talk about competition for roles that they would hold, right, or that leadership was something, leader roles were something that had to be competed for, that there, were, there was some scarcity that they perceived there. And this was, again, in those students who sort of reflected more stage three thinking. And for the students who reflected more stage four thinking, the leadership differentiated where they were thinking in terms of process, I didn't hear those same types of constructions of uh, their sense of self or how they saw themselves in relation to others. And I thought that was interesting, and I conceived of this as sort of a filter where certain information was being uh, passed through or amplified, and maybe other information was you know, not, not emerging through the filter. Um, and to me, this was this gives me some ideas for how those of us that are practicing leadership education in this achievement-oriented environment, how we might talk about student perceptions of self, student perceptions of other, and identity as leader or person practicing leadership, leadership, you know, or both of those at the same time. So that was kind of a lot. I know it's uh, trying to condense um, a lot of research into a couple bullet points is tricky, so. <laughs> yeah, no, it's certainly, uh, you know, certainly a, a lot of learning. So. Um, Melissa, I wondered um, when, we were, when we were prepping, uh, you talked a little bit about sort of the elusiveness of latter stage, I don't know if achievement would be the right phrase, but folks reaching the latter stage in uh, the leadership identity development process. And so, um, I just wonder, you know, what have you, what have you seen and what sort of thoughts do you have about, um, you know, about getting folks to the latter stages of leadership identity development? Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the first things to keep in mind about the LID model um, when it, you know, kind of when it was first constructed is that it really is a lifespan model. And so, you know, while the, the research has been done, you know, to create the model was done with college students as to be honest, is most <laughs> research out there, right? Because there are an easy population on a college campus to get a hold of. Um, that really, um, what we're looking at in the LID model is is lifespan oriented. And so, um, one of the things that you know some of that original research had pointed out is that they really struggled to find um, anyone that had kind of moved beyond any students, any current undergraduate students that had really moved beyond kind of the stage four realm. And so while that key transition was really prominent in the college space, that um, looking at kind of stages five and six was kind of harder, harder to identify in college students. And that makes sense for a lot of reasons. Because if you think about human development, um, you know, we continue to develop as, you know, into more complex humans throughout the, the, 
the rest of our lives, you know, ideally. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to take a look at, though, is, you know, if we could find examples of folks who had kind of broadened their leadership understanding to, into that kind of more generative um, and a more integrated leadership identity, as stage five and six talk about, you know, what is it that's gotten them there? And so I actually, um, I went and specifically sought out uh, either, either current college students or alum up to about three years out of school um, uh, across the country um, who, who maybe might, might have fit those later stages and got a lot of help from folks who really know the lid research. Um, so our scholar and practitioner friends that are working with, with college students and leadership programs to help me identify those students. And it's kind of like searching for a needle in a haystack, right? It's why I did kind of a qualitative case study analysis because there's just not that many of them. So um, in taking, long story short, find these wonderful students and in kind of taking a look at their experiences throughout their lives and within, you know, kind of the college environment, there's a couple of things that that they experienced um, that seem unique compared to maybe what we see in the standard kind of slew of, of college student leadership programming. And so one of those things um, that was really transformative for students in my study was um, uh, peer education. And so not just, not just being in some sort of a program where they are teaching something peer-to-peer, but being involved in a program where they were specifically engaging with leadership literature and were then tasked with teaching um, or engaging their peers around that literature. So almost like a, a peer leadership educator, if you will. And so all the students in my study had had an experience with that. Um, and what they talked about is just the, the way that they were able to um, kind of find their own efficacy around leadership understanding and the variety of approaches to leadership that exist out there in the world. And because of their exposure to that information and having to get to know it intimately to then be able to teach it to others um, was really transformative for them. Um, and so, you know, kind of one of those high impact practices, if you will. Um, another one that, that folks talked about and um, that was particularly transformative for them and their understanding of leadership in, in more broad ways was engaging in immersion style programs. And oftentimes in the student affairs space, we think about immersion programs as like alternative break programs. But in the case of these participants, they were engaging in almost like leadership camp experiences prior to coming to college. So I have students from lots of different college institutions who in their high school experience and in their middle school experience even had been attending, you know, summer camps or overnight experiences uh, through various youth development organizations that were talking with them about leadership as in a more collaborative and inclusive way, um, kind of debunking some of their own thoughts around, you know, leader as only position. And so to have the opportunity to engage in that kind of community collaborative form of leadership at an earlier point in their developmental life, um, being, coming to college then, and unlike most college students we've seen in the research so far, these students were already primed to be thinking about leadership in more complex, inclusive, process-oriented ways because of their pre-college experience. So it was something particularly interesting. 
Um, and then the, you know, the last piece that I'll talk about um, was, was kind of the, um, some of the factors and forces, I guess, within some of those, uh, you know, key experiences that they talked about. And so one of those things was the opportunity to actually practice community-based leadership or collaborative styles of leadership. So in addition to learning about it, being able to engage in activities and simulations that um, actually engage them in that type of leadership. Um, and then the opportunity um, to continually build upon what they had been learning. So we, you know, in the kind of nerdy world of curriculum design, we call that developmental sequencing. But the students in my study had all had the opportunity to move from maybe learning about a certain type of leadership and engaging in it themselves in some of these programs to then, like I had mentioned earlier, being able to be kind of like a camp counselor or a peer educator that was then teaching about that kind of leadership to others. And then a number of them eventually in their college experience and then beyond college have also kind of gone back to help even design the curriculum and programs um, that they had then attended you know, earlier on in their life. So just that idea of continually building on their experience with, with, these, you know, with that, those broader, more complex forms of leadership was really interesting and definitely um, something that the students in my study talked a lot about. Mm. Yeah, yeah. To, I mean, uh, when I was working uh, directly in student leadership programs, certainly still think of myself as a leadership educator, but when I was yeah. managing co-curricular leadership programs for uh, George Washington University, I uh, spent a lot of, like, there was a sort of slow realization that crept into, that, like, crept into my head that was, saying, you know, I, there's, I think, a lot of questions about, um, engage, like, engagement, retention, melt, uh, basically, like, you know, college students really being excited about, you know, like, on its face, you know, like, this is a leadership program. Um, I, you know, I think that there are real engagement questions that folks are experiencing throughout the country, and um, I, I think, you know, something, uh, a very informal thought that I have about that is that I think folks are showing up on college campuses thinking that they are already either, and I would say probably probably more prominently, already a leader or have done leadership things, or they're already mm -hmm. prepared to engage in leadership, and so they're not, because they're getting that earlier. You know, I think that there's right. a lot of folks who co-curricular engagement on uh, high school and or middle school campuses or things like like immersion experiences for leadership. There's a ton of experiences like that. Um, and I think you're acutely aware of those in D.C. if you're, you know, you see like, mm -hmm. you know, school buses riding around for like National Youth Leadership Seminar or Symposium, whatever that, whatever that program is called. And, um, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense. So, um, you know, I think it's a real question for how we're positioning what we're doing related to leadership on college campuses. For sure, for sure. Yeah. So uh, let's close with a group question and a, a hat tip to frequent contributor uh, John Dugan. Um, <laughs> how, how do you all think that we can work to deconstruct how identities show up in LID? Erica, do you want to sort of jump in first? Yeah, and I'm thinking uh, even just back to what we've just been reflecting on um, with the sort of the pre-experiences that students have in immersion and in, um, in ways that construct them as leaders, right? And so they're introduced mm -hmm. to these roles and these identities. But I, I wonder how often we really talk about leader and leadership as an identity. 
Um, yeah. And I think that that's something that John's research has really sort of brought to the fore, that we can't talk about you know, all of these issues of identity and these questions of how a student um, experiences themselves and the groups that they're part of and the sort of power that they hold and, or the times in which they feel like they're part of systems that, that don't confer, confer a lot of power in, on them, um, that these are so bound up in each other, all of these identities, and the opportunity to talk about leadership identity while we're talking about racial identity and gender identity and immigrant status and uh, sexual orientation and all the different identities that students hold. You know, I'd love to see us talk more about leadership, leader identity as part of those. Yeah, think, I, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I'm over here like shaking my head, for sure, uh, in agreement as you're talking. You know, I think um, one of the things that I, I think I'm continually conflicted about in the way that we talk about and teach leadership in the college context is that I think sometimes we're um, unaware of how sometimes our programs or our, our design kind of perpetuates some of the like systems and structures that, um, that are out there in the world that, that oppress and marginalize too. So I'm thinking about like, I just had an interesting conversation with some folks around um, just the idea of like even how we use the term student leader, for example. So um, we, I feel like we place in the world of like kind of student affairs work, we place that term student leader kind of on any student that's like around us a lot as administrators um, or who happens to like do all of the things and all of the work. Um, and when we think about the message that that sends, right, that sends a message of that the, the students who are leaders are the ones who are doing things um, and kind of leaves out all the other ways that a student can engage in leadership. And so it's preferencing some of that positional power. Um, and then when we, you know, to John's point, when we then think about, okay, well then who are the students on our campus who have access to admin circles? And who are the students on our campus who, you know, are, are encouraged to take on all of the things, you know, the major student organizations, the big, the big time programs and productions happening on campus. Who do we see in those spaces and who don't we see in those spaces? And so even just our use of the term student leader, I think can be really problematic. And that absolutely affects the way that students either do or don't think of themselves as leadership or as leaders. So when you think about them finding themselves in the context of leadership, there's some, there's some stuff we do in, in the college environment that I think even, um, you know, kind of inhibits or contributes to how students show up in, you know, something like a leadership identity development model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. And I think, you know, part of that to me is also then, okay, our challenge in gravitating and and sort of finding ways into the spaces where students are talking about kind of liberation and identity and, yeah. and power and systems and how to sort of frame some of that with, in leadership terms or in the context that really affirms leadership as a practice um, as one is, you know, really trying to, to redistribute or to advance equity and, and justice and you know, the sort of larger context. Absolutely. 
Yeah. 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 I mean, I think I think it's one of these things where you've got to um, where you've got to like really consider. You know, I think most of your point um, there are. You know, I, I think it even I think it even like boils down to to language and something I've been thinking about recently is like conversations related to like student financial uh, processes. So like I've heard on many occasions the idea of student organizations choosing to use their student activity fee allocation or whatever the case may be to, to end up paying their leaders. I've heard that as an imprudent use of funds and I've heard that like suggested that that is the case on many occasions. But I think the reality is is that, you know, like any student, any positional student leadership opportunity, volunteer opportunity, whatever you put forward for students to be engaging in um, that you really need people to be involved with, if it's a function of the university, I think you've got to figure out a way. If people are totally opting into it of their own accord and something the university wouldn't be engaging in, that. Uh, you know, then I, I think that there's less that we can do related to finances. But if it's something the university really needs students to be doing and students just happen to be governing and happening, happen to be doing it themselves, I think you've got to figure out a way to, I think you've got to figure out a way to be able to financially support the students who are engaging in those leadership roles because absolutely, I mean, you're going to, um, you're going to be drawing from a pool of folks who have the opportunity and who have the resources in order to be able right. to take the time to do that. So, um, right. I think there's tons of little, you know, little applications like that, but it just has to be something that um, we're engaged with, you know, in system thinking where we're developing policies and processes to think about, you know, secondary repercussions of that and how to, you know, how to build financial flexi flexibility in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All righty. Well, um, thanks to everyone for joining us for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASA Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community. And thanks to Melissa Rocco and Erica Coender for sharing their knowledge and getting us caught up on where the leadership identity development model is, is today. And I think we'll continue to see, uh, I think we'll continue to see an evolution of that. And I think that I've seen a ton of really interesting scholarship on that at, at annual conferences and several, on several fronts recently. So excited to see where that continues to evolve. Uh, you can get more information about the SLPKC on our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash SALEAD, on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC, on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter. I'm at Miles, which is M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program. So please shoot an email over to naspalaterpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Erica. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you. Miles. Great talk. Yeah, a lot of fun.